Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. I'm Melissa Salrin, and I'm here with Rachel Woody, and we're talking with Gary Figgins of Leonetti Cellar on July 16th, 2014 at Leonetti. So the first question, Gary, why wine? Why wine? That's probably the easiest question you could ever ask. <laughs> um, growing up, I was exposed to the Italian side of my family, which is the Leonetti's. My mother was a Leonetti. And so grandma and grandpa had an estate out uh, just sort of south of the, south and west of the uh, current country club. So, so as a child, I was poured a little bit of wine with dinner. And Grandpa made wine, so and he made wine for family use only. So they had made three to five barrels a year in their cellar, and so when I was just a a wee lad, I was I was given a little bit of wine with water in it, and then once I attained the advanced age of nine or ten, I got it straight. <laughs> so that's really typical, and you probably heard that before, you know, and that. Uh, uh, European families, that was, wine was part of their culture and they started the, the children out at a, at a youthful age having a little bit to get, to, to gain the taste and to gain the respect of, of uh, consuming wine. And so that stayed with me and of course um, when my wife Nancy and I were married, my choice of drink was uh, outside of having a beer for thirst, <laughs> I, would, I would drink wine. That was my choice. I never really did uh, like uh, uh, hard liquor per se, but wine was my selected drink. And so, of course, that led into interest in winemaking. Okay. Yeah. Well, I know, I know like you're saying, your, your roots run deep in the valley. So your, your grandparents, your, um, your maternal grandparents emigrated in the early 20th century from Italy. Yes. And so did, did others, had others already gotten here too? Because I know from, from reading that they came to Ellis Island and then they came directly to Walla Walla. And what, what led them to Walla Walla? Right. Um, there was a, uh, the, the, the early Italians started coming in the 1800s, maybe as early as 1840s, 1860s. And at the time, in order for you to have a family member come over, some, some family member, cousin, uncle, aunt, whatever, had to sponsor them. And so, in other words, they had a place to come and stay until they got, they got on their feet and got a job or, you know. Um, so, uh, there was a, at some point there was um, um, land available um, for the taking, if you would take it, plot it out, make a living off of it, and over a period of years, it became yours automatically. So um, that message was was spread, of course, and the the population wasn't great at the time, 
And so there was, there's plenty of land to go around. So they were sponsored by a, by a relative. And then they came over. Grandpa came over first in, in, in 02. And, and, uh, and that's 1902. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then Grandma, I believe, came over a year or two or so later, but they were married here. Okay. And uh, it was kind of an arranged thing, and, which was quite common back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And so they, had, they um, established, um, uh, what is it, what would they call the, uh, the, like, like the homesteading thing? That's, that's kind of what that was, okay. uh, when you could work a piece of ground and became yours. Okay. Um, and so, so they picked out a 20-acre piece uh, out behind the country club with two creeks running through it. So there's water. And um, um, so they, they did the whole garden farm thing. And then they had their, they had their animals. They had a couple plow horses. And they had cows and ducks and chickens and rabbits and such, you know, and, and hogs. They raised hogs so they could make their sausages and their uh-huh. prosciutto hams and all that. It was a typical, really a typical growing up in an Italian family. It's, it's just, it was just like growing up in Italy except you were here, you uh-huh. know. Yeah, but it was really like that. They're really self-sufficient. Uh-huh. You know, they did everything for themselves, you know. Raised their own eggs and everything, so. Okay. Yeah, and then all their vegetables and yeah. Nice. Well, so I know wine winemaking is in your background, and I know um, you were a hobby winemaker for a while. Yes. And so, what? How did you develop your your skill and your um, knowledge of how to make wine? What did you do to gain information about? Well, once I be once I the the, the bug bit me. I'd, I'd go back, and of course, grandpa, grandpa was was gone by this time, and 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 the uncles were, you know, they made wine inter- intermittently, and, and grandpa every year, you know, he had to have, keep those barrels full, you know, and um, as a youth, I saw them crushing the grapes and pressing, you know, using the press to press them out, and uh, once. I, I was bit with a wine bug. The, um, uh, I went back to the uncles and started asking questions about what they did. And it wasn't perfectly clear to me that, that uh, it, was, it was quite rustic winemaking at that time. So it was, it was they picked the grapes when they thought they were ripe and they crushed them and put them in the vat and they fermented by themselves. Of course, they stirred them up and then they they pressed them when they thought it should be pressed. There was no recipe. It was it was uh, what they did at the time, you know, and in between all their their farming activities, you know. So um, so I couldn't get any any real concrete answers or direction. So uh, I undertook to start my home winemaking career which I did for about eight years. And um, um, so during that time, I studied intensively, picked up all the books that were available out of uh, UC Davis, California, you know, that had been written over the years, studied uh, uh, different uh, techniques from other regions that I could glean from 
books from Europe and, and started making sojourns to uh, California wine country at that time. And during this time, honing my skills, I started out making fruit wines because okay. that's what was available. And then once I was um, um, initiated, so to speak, uh, in my skills, I, I made contact with people who had vineyard, not here because it didn't exist really here, except for like a backyard row of vines or something, you know. Um, because the, the industry, which I think there were three wineries here in the late 1800s, and that's, that's history. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, there was one, uh, Bert Puccello, uh, in, in uh, Milton Freewater. He made wine up until World War uh, II, in which, and then he went off to war, I believe. And, and so he never resurrected that when he came back. Um, and so, um, so there were no, there were no, there were no vineyards, and and so I started. May I started uh, um, a friendship up with several vineyard owners over in the Tri Cities area, and and um, was able to start making homemade wine on a small scale out of grapes. And so I think our first vintage of vinifera grapes was '75. And that's, um, and then, uh, so every, I made wine every year off of vinifera, European wine grapes, until I decided to uh, uh, go commercial and start my winery uh, in 1978. So that was our first vintage. Okay, so you were bonded. So 75 through 77. Yeah, we were bonded in 77 and 78 was our first vintage. Okay. And you had planted the vineyard with your Uncle George and Uncle Bill in 1974. In 1974. Right. That's okay. correct. Okay. Yeah. And I know you were working um, f uh, as a machinist um, and you didn't stop working. You kept your day job for quite a while. That's right. Yeah. Uh -huh. I was working as a machinist for well, I worked at Continental Can Company, which is what it was called at that time, yeah. for 20 years total before I got out. But the last 10 years, I was building the business. Mm -hmm. So I actually worked with my dad. My dad was a tool and die maker okay. there in the machine shop and at Continental Can. And so I joined as an apprentice, but in my apprenticeship, and was then a, a bona fide machinist. Um, but I did that for 10 years. And then finally, I think I got out in 1988, a full 10 years after my first vintage. Wow. Yeah. And people thought that I was crazy. And, um, well, you left a, you know, at that time, high paying job in, in, in Walla Walla. Right, right. You know, for skilled, for skilled uh, craft. And um, so, uh, my daughter Amy, it's funny, to this, to this day, I would always, Nancy would come down to the back door of the shop to pick up our check. You know, we lived from paycheck to paycheck. So she would, she would get the check, go to the bank and cash it, and then take the kids to the grocery store. Uh -huh. So, so the, Amy's association, she was what, 15 or something like that when I, when I left Continental Can Company. So she had the association that 
boy, that, that paycheck meant groceries. <laughs> so, so, uh, so she said, finally she said, well, Dad, what, what are we going to do for groceries? <laughs> so literally, I paid myself the same wage that I made at Continental Can for the first three years. Mm -hmm. But after that first year, the, after I left Continental Can Company, we had paid for my wage, all the grapes, corks, capsules, glass, everything for that vintage. And at the, at the just prior to releasing our, our, our first wine, actually, no, it wasn't our first wine, uh, just prior to the, the next vintage coming on board, uh, we had literally, after we paid for all that, only $3,000 left in the bank. Wow. So, I mean, and, and it, it got better after that. Right. But anything along the line could have caused a big hiccup, but it didn't uh -huh. because we're very frugal. And um, I made a lot of the equipment in the winery, and so our expenses weren't, uh -huh. weren't high. And when we started, we just had that little building right to, just to the south of this stone building okay. now. So, uh, and then over time, we... Uh, you know, I started this stone building with the cellar below in 1985. And I mean, we do things slowly, you know, we had to. Right. We were on a shoestring almost the whole time until things really got better, you know, over, over a period. But um, we literally started this in 85 and finished, it, finished this building in 95. Everything seems to be on a 10 year cycle okay. for us. <laughs> so yeah, we did the, the cellar and we laid so this cellar was being used for, for barrels and case goods below us. Okay. And of course, we had put a, uh, actually, this was exposed to the elements. This floor was exposed to the elements. So we had this concrete deck. It's now got tile on it, but, and we literally packed, I bought bales of straw, and we literally packed bales of straw in here for insulation. For the top of this deck and then covered it all with 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 plastic for several years and used the cellar well and then we we built the roof over the head overhead and then filled in the walls over the next couple of years my father-in-law helped us on oh, wow. uh, on this my father-in-law who we rec recently who recently passed away um did all the sheetrock in here did all the the, the wood decking, he built these redwood doors. Wow. Yeah. And uh, so this was all, you know, of course I, I helped during this, this period, but I was busy making wine too. So, <laughs> so he was very helpful in helping us do a lot of carpentry stuff. Oh, great. Yeah. And then we started laying stone around the outside and it took us quite a while. I started the, laying the stone myself and th this is very interesting because it, it jogs my memory to see how the sequence right. sequence all goes down and works. And and so I figured, well, if I was going to lay the stone on this building in my lifetime, I better get some help, you know. So so I started. You can see my work out front, and you kind of see where I stopped and they started. But I had I had a, a friend who had another friend who they jumped in and, and worked on this in the winter time. So over a period of three winters, because they had other jobs scheduled. Right. Right. So 
over, and they'd tent, tent, off, tent this thing off and put heat inside of it and laid stone during the winter. And so three winters, they, they completed the task. Okay. Yeah. I know that um, you were one of the individuals who was involved in getting the ABA established. And yes. It was approved in 1984. Yes. I know um, Darcy, Fugman Small, and Rick Small were involved. You were involved. Mm -hmm. um, can, you, can you tell us a little bit about that process and why it was important to establish the ABA? You bet. Um, when, when you realize an, like an upstart region, you, you have to, uh, you have to uh, build an identity for that region, which is marketable, obviously. So it was very important to have, to establish this. So uh, Rick and Darcy, uh, myself, um, uh, I believe it was uh, uh, Casey, Vicki McClung right. were in on it, as well as uh, a, a, a few others. And Becky Hendricks. Becky Hendricks. Yeah. She was great. Um, uh, any more that you can that you can jog my memory with? Uh, I think I think that the, the early days was Eric Grindall in there. I'm not sure, but um, um, so we had these meetings and and figured out what exactly what is the protocol for us to follow to with the at that time was Bureau of, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Um, uh, to accomplish that and to make uh, and, de and to delineate the geographical boundaries. And um, uh, at one point, I think uh, uh, Rick and I, Rick Small and I, uh, grabbed a six pack of beer and, and, and drove around the whole valley one day and, uh, and had a couple beers and took notes and, and figured out where. where the boundaries really should be in respect to respecting the valley, uh -huh. both geographically, you know. And, and then you had mentioned uh, the, the Oregon-Washington interface, and, and of course one-third of the valley is in Oregon. So we, we, followed, um, we followed certain boundaries, like when, when it got to the higher hills around the Oregon side, and and then up in the Blue Mountains, we went to a specific elevation. I believe it was 2,000 feet okay. at that point. And so anything beyond that is not, is not valley. It's, it'd be more mountainous or whatnot. And um, so it, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a pretty big valley, you know, when you when you encompass one-third of it in Oregon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, uh, so anyway, that was, little by little, we, we accomplished all the necessary regs and protocol to, towards establishing our, our delineated wine-growing appellation. So, mm -hmm. you know, climates played in, plays into that, soil types play into that. So uh, yeah, it was fun. It was good. It was a good time. Yeah. And I know your son Chris was involved in 2001 when they extended the ABA. Exactly. And, and included. And I was reminded of that because I had forgotten all about that, and because I wasn't involved in. Right. It. But yeah, um, I believe um, uh, 
Chris and uh, Norm McKibben Norm, yeah. were responsible for that one. Yeah. So can you, um, I mean, I know that there was a, a small community of, of initial winemakers in the region. You know, we've talked about Rick Small and um, Gene and Baker Ferguson were here. And I know that um, there was the Walla Walla Valley Wine Growers Association, which is the precursor to the Walla Walla Valley Wine Alliance that, that now exists. But what, um, what kind of function did that organization have for you? I mean, what was it like when you're all doing something that is, is new um, to the region? Well, obviously, we, we had to cut our teeth, not knowing really what to do with that. But um, it was a great organization. And um, um, we had meetings and tastings. And uh, everybody was in a, this, the industry was just, you know, steamrolling and everybody was this excitement you know because a new region and great wines are coming out of this region and geez what do we do with this and you know and how do we handle it and and um uh, there was a lot of good good uh, uh good thinkers in the group and with our meetings and whatnot we sorted things out and kind of paved the path you know for for the future it all worked out pretty well. Yeah. I know in 1995, there were 11 wineries in the valley. In 95? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then by this year, there are around 120. I know, depending, the number fluctuates. Yeah. Um, and about 1,600 acres of grapes. Um, so there, definitely the scale has, has greatly evolved. Um, what, what else has changed about the industry in the Walla Walla Valley? What else can change? Or what else has changed? What else have you noticed? Oh my goodness. Um, of course, what the industry has brought, you know, when, when you consider back when we all got started on this, there, 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 there was an article in the Union Bulletin, Union Bulletin about the, the a lot of storefronts closed and and uh, and tumbleweeds blowing down Main Street. <laughs> so it was, you know, it was an agricultural-based economy, really, and with no tourism. So and and you're you're kind of in the hinterlands. You're you're kind of removed from the large population centers of Portland or Seattle, mm -hmm. and or Spokane for that matter, and. You're kind of isolated. You had to be going to Walla Walla to 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 be there. You, know, you had to be that was your destination. But so obviously it was just a small community, and um, and uh, the downtown, which was once very vibrant, because this was kind of the step off point to, as we all know, uh, gold rush mm -hmm. in Idaho, and so this was a supply central supply point for the. For, for all that, and so that was that was a heyday. And then, of course, after that played all out, then it sort of Walla Walla became a little sleep, a sleepy little burg again. And 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 so what the wine industry really did, essentially in a nutshell, is inject this new excitement and vitality into into uh, this this town that had one or two restaurants and. 
and and uh, and not much going on downtown. So that's kind of how it how it kind of degraded. And all of a sudden, things pick back up. People are interested. People are from California are coming in, buying buildings, brick buildings and whatnot downtown, and and uh, and now we have all these, these these restaurants and wine bars and wine tasting rooms. You can't find a, hardly a vacant room or vacant space mm -hmm. downtown. You know, I, I'm I'm preaching to the choir here, but it's I'm just reflecting on it all. Yeah, and um, and. Uh, and now the future is, uh, uh, there's more vineyards continue to be planted. This thing will just keep, keep rolling. How, how much? Since we planted the seed, you know, and then the, and then the thing started steamrolling. I mean, it went from 11 in, in, a, in a very short period of time to 125. I mean, maybe more than that, they say. Right. But, but, and more people want to come. And now I just... A distillery or two, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a brewery or three, and um, uh, so it's just. If you want to come to Walla Walla, you can have great scenery, a unique um, small town atmosphere with historical buildings, and great wine, great food, um, friendly people. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the successful combination of all that, you know, is just going to be, I'd like to, I'd like to come back in a hundred years and see. <laughs> I got to figure out how to be reincarnated into something else. Um, I know that from the beginning, you've been a very big supporter of the Walla Walla Community College's Center for Enology and Viticulture. Yes. And, and how, how do you think that program has impacted developments in the region. Wow, tremendously. And, and the whole reason why uh, several of us um, jumped at the chance of being on the steering committee mm -hmm. when, when some of the visionaries like um, Steve N. Osdale and Miles Anderson mm -hmm. first hatched the plan to, to create this, we, j we jumped on it because at that time, there, we, we didn't have educated people um, uh, to work in our, in, our, in our cellars. We primarily had to rob somebody from somebody else, like go to another region, offer somebody a, a, a better paying job, something like that. And, uh, and so I think, I think the, the, the Center for Enology and Viticulture was, was pivotal in in, 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 in helping and contributing to this whole, making that, that step up from a, a, a handful or two handfuls of mom and pop wineries to what we have today, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I, that provided the education and, and the ability for us to, to, to leapfrog and, and, uh, get the vital juices flowing in the, the industry, so to speak. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was key. That, that place was, um, was and, and not only does it f fulfill or fill our needs in our, in our uh, regional um, 
industry and success, but a lot of those students go to other regions, Yakima yeah. Valley and Tri-Cities and, and, and then on the west side of the mountains as well. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah, no, I, it's a, um, that, that is a, a great achievement for us, getting a teaching facility in Walla Walla. It also marked us as a region, you know. California had, had Davis and if you wanted to, and Fresno. So if you wanted to uh, get uh, some accredited uh, kudos for yourself um, and learn the craft, that's where you had to go. Mm -hmm. and, and so, and it was so, because that industry was growing too, they would take, they would take residents first. And so it was tough for somebody outside of living in California to get into those institutions. And so this was a real, real plus getting this started all the way around for, you know, adding to the success of the region, providing that base, you know, the, uh, of skilled people coming out of there. Mm -hmm. yeah. I know that um, Leonetti is a member of the Walla Walla Valley Wine Growers Sustainable Trust, which was founded in 2004. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I know that you are one of the leaders in practicing sustainable viticulture. Mm -hmm. So can you, can you talk a little bit about the emphasis on, on that? And what, you know, the fact that we have this organization in this region that supports this. I mean, what, what is the significance of that? Well, the significance is really to, to, if you have that glass in your hand, you want all the goodness that you can do out in the field and the vineyard in that glass. And so early on, I had told my son Chris, um, says we, we really need to go more or, organic. Things have to be go more towards that sustainable, organic, um, because we were seeing uh, pest problems. Mm -hmm. um, and at the time the, the movement started, we were early on in on that no herbicide type things, you know, because it was just not, it was just detrimental to the, to the growing of the, of the plant material. And, and workers' health and everything. Mm -hmm. And so um, the, the, the beauty is that grapes lend themselves towards that kind of a, you know, sustainable, organic, biodynamic, if you will, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, function of, of agriculture. And, and that's what it is. So we led, we led the way and to, to, to do that. And uh, with a, with a with a handful of others, mm -hmm. and um, we kind of f fell into the uh, Oregon Live program, and mm -hmm. so that was all. It sort of fits right in right. into that. And um, today, the the disease pressures are 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 less. The grapes are better, and we have goodness in the glass, and that's that's what the consumer pays for, and and wants and demands mm -hmm. and um, uh, but we we had to initiate that ourselves because it was 
You know, you, you started out also, like, like our, our vineyard up behind us here, our Lust Vineyard, it produces fantastically high quality grapes. When we first took that over, the soil was crusty. It's deep soil, by the way. It's deep soil. It's lovely deep soil. But it was conventionally farmed for years. Uh -huh. And so the organic matter was gone. They would burn it off and such, you know, uh, the crop residues. And, and so the soil wasn't, wasn't draining. And there was these, when you'd have to dig to replace a plant or whatever, or, or just dig a pipeline or whatever, they had these tiny little skinny anemic looking worms that um, were just str struggling to survive up, up there in that, in that soil. And so we initiated to, to um, and, and by the way, it wouldn't drain well, the water would sheet off and erosion would start and soil would run down to the bottom of the hill. So when we initiated our program, uh, which was deep ripping, adding compost, uh, using compost teas with adding mycorrhiza to those, those teas and, and other nutrients and blue-green algae and the list goes on and on. And getting that soil health back was key. Mm -hmm. And it's key to every vineyard, really. And, and, and then planting uh, grasses within the rows. Well, within a very short period of time, just goes to show you um, how the earth, Mother Gaia, um, can heal itself. Mm -hmm. And so uh, after a few short years, we're digging a hole to replace a plant and, and the, the worms were as big as snakes, so to speak. <laughs> that's, a, that's a vivid image. It, it, it's vivid. It's vivid. Vivid imagery. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so today, no, there's no runoff off that vineyard. It all goes in. It's, it's kept. And the vines are healthy. And, and, and when everything's in balance, there's... The, the wines are balanced and the, the vines are just ultra healthy with zero pest problems. Um, and uh, it's just, it, it's a shining example of what you can do mm -hmm. and, and where everybody should go, really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, I'm going to pass it off to my colleague, Rachel. So. I'm good, man. I'm on a roll. Yes, you are. <laughs> yeah. I think I could listen to you all day with your stories. Oh, there's, it's just, all you have to do is ask the right questions and then just let me spin it. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll see how I do then. Yeah. So we're going to sort of transition the focus from your story to the broader Walla Walla AVA and, and touch a little bit on the Oregon-Washington relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we'll sort of finish off with any like lessons learned and, and parting thoughts on your end. Okay? Okay. So my first question for you in this section is, what do you think this region is known for? What is its identity? Well, the region is, is of course, uh, uh, is 
and always has been primarily a, a, a grain growing area. Mm. And, and especially in the hillsides um, around the valley. And the valley proper or the valley floor or nearly the valley floor has always been a cornucopia of, of agricultural products, which includes, you know, all the tree fruits, berries, onions, um, you know, all the, all the wonderful vegetables that can grow in this valley. It's just, it literally, literally is a bountiful cornucopia horn of plenty. And, and so uh, today uh, there has been vineyards have made inroads into some of those hillsides and, and now we've established this region and it's, it's gotten renowned uh, around the world. We've had people from, from Europe and Australia and they've heard of Walla Walla Valley, you know, they've heard of Walla Walla. In fact, our reputation has grown so, so much so that it's, um, it's, gone, it's gone beyond our, our capability to provide the, uh, wine. The, the, the demand is, is outstrips the, the supply. Um, and we still are a relatively small um, growing area. And I know there's over, over a couple thousand acres of grapes now and growing. Mm. So, um, so, uh, so now we're, we're hopeful that, that, that the, the reputation has been established and, and the demand can be satisfied mm -hmm. so that we can take the next step up in the progression of the history of Walla Walla winemaking and wine growing. What do you think that next step looks like? Where's my crystal ball? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's just, um, it, it's, it's like when the, that, that, those two handfuls started and they kind of, it, it was just sort of stayed there for the longest period, it seemed. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I was, I uh, thought, well, I don't know if it's really going to happen in my lifetime. It should happen, but, uh, mm -hmm. but maybe not, the timeline might not be in my lifetime. And but without even, you know, with my blinders on, do, going about my business, it just happened. It just sprung up like mushrooms over, mm -hmm. you know, overnight after a rain. So then, and, and then, so once we established like a base, like this big base of wineries and making nice wines and getting the reputation, it, it sort of leveled off, especially when the economy got so bad in 08. Mm -hmm. And it leveled off, and, and we even lost a, a winery or, or two that were, were marginal. Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and now the next, the next step up, I think there's gonna, I think you're gonna see it go in, in fits and starts. And, and at some point it may just, uh, may just make a steady progression. Maybe that's how it's going to happen anyway. I think that's kind of the way I see it right now. It's making a steady, steady progress. Uh, there's not the influx of everybody wanting to, to, to make wine and like, like, there, like there was in that growth phase that we had, that boom, just like, 
wow, I mean, I, I've never seen a region grow so fast in such a short period of time. Right. Um, and so it's good that, that it's moderate now and, and that now you just cruise forward and, and, and take it into the future. And I, I wouldn't be surprised to see a couple hundred wineries within 10 or 15 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The important thing is, is having, having because we are a um, semi-arid area, you know, our, our rainfall is um, in a good year, 15 to 17 inches. Now that's, you can, on deep soils, you can, you can grow grapes with that amount of rainfall but you need some supplemental and so water is the key issue and that's going to restrict um having the the establishment the, the establishment of vineyards um, mm -hmm. it's going to somewhat hinder that so now if somebody wants water because there is a moratorium on on wells you have to buy water rights from somebody else and and then uh, apply it to a given uh, piece of land so that's a little stumbling block mm -hmm. and so water's the future i think yeah and of course as you crowd the as you get as you go up in the elevations in the foothills um the your your grape species is going to have to change because it's going to go into cooler but you get more rainfall so whereas the lower foothills and some of the higher foothills areas are mostly Bordeaux varieties today. Uh, further up into some of the canyons and the blues and whatnot and higher elevations, um, you can look at getting some dynamite Chardonnay or Pinot Noir growing up into that area. Yeah, absolutely. But that's a battle for another day because uh, it's pretty pretty hard to compete with Malama Valley mm -hmm. and their strong Pinot. I mean that's that's their red variety. So yeah, but I think we can make some killer Pinot Noir out of some areas up here. But well, again, um, higher rainfall is 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 what's required and cooler regions for that. To continue on the varietal track for a minute, what varietals have you found that grow best for you? And do you happen to remember the varietals that your uncles or your grandpa was even trying to grow at here? Yeah, so what was the, 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 what was the, the, the first, first question? Uh, what varietals that you have found to, are your kind of varietals for the, right here? Well, we started out with um, uh, Cabernet and Merlot here. And, and they are still our, our, our best grapes. Syrah has come in and, and made some, some wonderful advances and made some great wines. Um, so we, we see Merlot and Cabernet here at our winery to be, uh, and we take from south of the valley, mid valley, and then to the east up towards Mill Creek area. And, and we, pick, we, we grow Merlot and Cabernet in all those areas. And it's just, it's, it's fantastic. I would say uh, year in and year out, um, 
when you factor in that occasional cold winter that we get and you see some see some vine damage on especially vine damage on lower vineyards you'll see that the Cabernet withstands those low minimum temperatures better than Merlot and so year in and year out uh, Cabernet Sauvignon is going to be the the grape that produces uh, ultra high quality in a, in, a, in a more consistent manner. Um, uh, the Cabernet we grow is um, uh, second to none in the world, really. So it's, 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 it's fantastic. It's more, it looks more European uh, than it does looking like California grown Cabernet. And oh yeah, oh the uh, uh, the early Italians um, grew a grape that they called Black Prince, and and so in the early days when we were trying to um, ampliography is the is the science of vineyard identification, and so when we were trying to do ampliography on what that grape was, those early Italians were growing. And my brother identified it um, and, and he went off to Australia and got educated that way and was in France working at a chateau and he, he honed his skills at, at vineyard identification and, and nailed the Black Prince as, as Cinso, which is, has another synonym of Black Malvoisie. And so it's called Cinso in both France and Italy. And it's also called in certain regions uh, in France, Black Malvoisie. So uh, the early Italians loved it because uh, number one, it made an early maturing wine. And number two, it was highly powdery mildew resistant so they didn't have to spray it. So they pretty much could just plant the grape and and uh, and harvest the fruit and and uh, and make some uh, lighter earlier maturing wines with sufficient fruit that they that they made it so they actually I think they were originally introduced to the variety because they they would bring uh, uh, carloads of grapes up from California in the early day, and and um, and then they'd take it, they'd go down, pick it up, take it home, make wine out of it, and um, and at some point, somebody had brought in some cuttings, and I know I I know that it was available out of California, and I know that that it grows in in southern Italy, and 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 so. The real mystery is how did it get here? Did it cut? Did the cuttings come from California, or did some Italians bring that variety over from Italy? Mm -hmm. That's a that's a question that I I don't think anybody has an answer to. It's a mystery, but I guess it doesn't really matter just as long as it's here, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. 
And in the early days too, Zinfandel was brought in, uh, uh, the, the, the ripe grapes from California. So there was actually some early Zins being made here, which would have been, would have been fun to taste. Yes, uh, we were just in Hood River in the Dalles last month doing a similar project, and I heard Zinfandel and I heard Riesling were the two in that area that they suspect were the early grapes back in the 1800s. In the Willamette? Well, in the Columbia, uh, the Hood River and the Dalles on the Oregon side. Oh, yeah. Um, so I find that fascinating. Well, there's some ancient old vines in the Dalles. There's Zinfandel. Yes, uh, Lonnie Wright's. Uh, vines now, I believe. How old are those? Do you know? I think they're over a hundred years old. Over a hundred. I've heard that. Yeah. And they're head trained or something like that? Yeah, he had to um, sort yeah. of coax out a new a new vine from the roots, but the roots are massive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But they're beautiful. Yeah. I think I've actually tasted a wine off that. It was very quiet. It was quite good. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the Dalles, of course, is really warm. It's, right. Um... Little warmer than Walla Walla, I think. Perhaps, yes. Yeah, it's in the shadow, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, they, they get they get pretty warm there. So they can ripen. Is what that was what I was getting at. Is they right. can ripen Zinfandel, which is a late ripener. And I don't know. There's um, um, in the early days, I had a friend that grew some Zinfandel. Uh, down on some sub-irrigated ground and it would always get bunch rot in it. He made some wine that was just so-so off of it. But the grapes are just all puffed up because they, they got all the water they could ever want. <laughs> you know, and it wasn't really conducive to quality, but... Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, but now there's, uh, there's a vineyard just on the other side of our property over here. And, um, and they've planted a small amount of Primitivo. Ooh. And Primitivo is is the Italian clone of Zinfandel, and it makes a little different wine. And I don't know what this specifically how that clone is. Usually, sometimes a clone will just have a different amount of uh, virus infection in it. <laughs> so it's a, well, this you know this this clone and that clone, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> So who knows? But anyway, there is a little Zin in the valley if you consider that Primitivo to be Zinfandel. And I, I, I think it, uh, it, it could be. So that's the only commercial Zin, I think, in the valley. Hmm, fascinating. Yeah. I've, so Walla Walla is a cross-state AVA. In your experience, what have you found to be the strengths and the challenges of that? So across state ABA, so essentially um, one third of the valley is in Oregon because it's just, that's the way it is. Mm -hmm. And it is a geographical boundary mm -hmm. uh, governed by the, the valley perimeter, essentially, and elevation. And, and what we found is that the grapes don't respect geographical boundaries. Actually, they, they respect geographical boundaries. They don't respect, I'm going to correct my earlier statement about geographical boundaries, it's political boundary. So the state line is a political boundary, not, not geographical. So, that, so I stand corrected, I corrected myself. Um, and um, in the heyday of 
this pent up excitement and and an expanding region mm -hmm. um, it was all associated with Washington State and and so there were one or two wineries over on on the Oregon's side but there wasn't this big stampede to get over there even though the grapes were fantastic mm -hmm. and part of the valley and um, um, over time, that's, that's, that's changing. Wineries are being established over there. Cayuse is over there. Um, new winery in 15 is going in over there. I won't say who. Uh, there's several now. And the, the region is, uh, that side of the valley was, has, has been sort of economically depressed. And they haven't gotten the real, uh, in the early days, the, the real benefit of our economic condition that was mm -hmm. that was lifting and steamrolling along mm -hmm. and but that's change that's changing right now and has been over time so um, I think you'll see that whole political boundary thing to just it's just gonna valley just gonna move into that area and of course you're you there's another thing too there's there's this state income tax in oregon there isn't that in washington mm -hmm. so people consider that when they consider a you know a winery over over on that side mm -hmm. so uh on the other hand there's no sales tax over there but there is here so maybe it's a wash <laughs> you know so um uh i when we here, we're a Washington winery, but we're, a, we're primarily and foremost a Walla Walla Valley winery. And we bring grapes from Oregon into our winery and blend them with Washington grapes on this, from this side of the valley. And we don't make any distinction between the, we, we erase the political boundary out of the out of the whole quotient of our wines. Mm -hmm. They're Walla Walla Valley wines. Mm -hmm. And that's and that's up to the individual if he's gonna establish a winery over there or over here. And then if he's an Oregon winery, he's on that side of the political boundary. Right. And he gets grapes from Washington on this side of the political boundary, he's still gonna call it Walla Walla Valley. So uh, that whole Appalachian thing kind of fits in quite well with that. And um, the majority of the new grapes going in because of the Savane project is, is in Oregon these days. Yeah, that's the, big, that's the big push. And there's gonna be more grown over there too because it's such a high quality region. Mm -hmm. The Seven Hills, Savane area. All right, so just a couple more left. Good. You still got on time? I got time. Excellent, okay. So with your wealth of experience, and especially with your family history, if you had advice to give to a new winemaker or somebody coming into the area, what would it be? 
I would, I would tell a new winemaker coming in, um, get your education behind you, uh, learn your craft, start small, get the best quality grapes and or grow the best quality, quality grapes you can do. If you take care of what's in that glass, irregardless, and you stay, stay small enough so you keep the quality, because some people will expand too fast and, and, and the quality goes down. Take care of what's in that glass and the rest is all superfluous fluff. And, and that will take care of you. So that's, you know, and however somebody has to get to that point, they have to figure out their own route to attain that. And then that's, that's what will take care of them. Mm -hmm. And that helps, that boosts the, the valley. And, there, and there's so many in the valley now that have held the bar high that you have to rise to the bar or, or exceed the bar um, in order to make a success. So, so, so that's the challenge for the new guy. Mm. You, gotta, you gotta make it good from the get-go. Mm. <laughs> There's a little leeway, you know, for uh, making your little, your little hiccups. I always tell people, uh, I always sold my mistakes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> sold all my mistakes. <laughs> I like it. So it's still possible, probably. But not not nearly not nearly uh, so as as it was probably. <laughs> yeah. And then my last question for you is between Melissa and myself: Is there anything that we should have asked you that we didn't, or any? No, you guys asked asked some awful good questions. Um, and 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 if and if you. If there was anything deficient in your questions, I, my, my incessant ramblings probably took care of that. Kind of spilled over. And <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys right. for your good questions and all. Any, anything else you guys have? Any last questions? No, I, I yeah. think uh, you're such a wonderful storyteller and I think we got what we needed. Well, you got so to tell the story. You. Somebody has to tell the story. <laughs> yes. well, there's a lot you. of storytellers in the valley. There's no, there's no, uh, you know, rarity of storytellers. That's for sure. So, uh, but uh, you know, being how we were the first, there's there's more story there that somebody else can't really tell as accurately as somebody who's lived it. So absolutely. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.